Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want to start a podcast but you don't know how? I didn't either. But let me tell you. If you ever heard about Anchor, that's the best way to make a podcast. When I tried, I must admit, I was a little bit skeptical at first, you know. But then, then I heard, when I heard it was free, I didn't think it would be this good, okay? Let me tell you. It's so good. Because there's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You don't even need to deal with the headache of thinking about how to publish on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, because Anchor will do that for you. They use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. If you can, if you want to make a living from your podcast, when there is no minimum listenership required, so this is the place. So if you want to start and make a living of a podcast, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. You can download the free Android app or on your Android or Apple phone, or you can go to anchor.fm to get started. Use Anchor for the, for your to make your podcast experience the ultimate podcast experience. We are live. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this on such short notice. And uh, I just want to begin from the very beginning. Today's episode, episode two, is going to be about ancient Egypt. And what's so impressive about this is that it's one of the oldest civilizations that we know. And it's uh, one of the longest lasting civilizations that we know of, ancient civilizations. And it's truly an impressive time period with the pyramids, the Sphinx, the pharaohs, the mythology, and their religion. And why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, and what, you, what you're here to talk about, as I mentioned. Uh, hello, well, I'm Professor Aidan Dodson of the University of Bristol, um, and I have been working on ancient Egypt for probably most of my adult life. You've been to Egypt, right? What was, what was your impression seeing in Egypt in person, the, the ancient, ancient, ancient civilization in person? Well, I first went to Egypt when I was 19, um, saw the pyramids and Cairo, and they were things which I had known about and had read about for since I was about seven or eight when I first got interested in the subject. But the sheer scale and feel of the pyramid site was something I'd never fully appreciated until you've actually stood at the bottom of one of the um, great pyramids, sh- understanding the sheer size of it. It's pretty it, massive. 
Yeah, you, you simply you simply your your brain can't quite um, sort of calculate it all properly. Um, and then subsequently, I have been to Egypt probably eighty or ninety times, wow. including time living there as well. Um, and every, even now, when I go back, I still get a buzz about the place. There's a certain feel. You, see, you get butterflies every time you go. Sorry. You get butterflies every time you go. Very slightly, yeah. You know, even though it's, if I go to places I've been to dozens of times before, there's a certain something to it. Yeah. I think one of the great times is the first thing in the morning as the sun is rising, if you're sitting looking over the, over the Nile, one quite understands how it has been the, um, the cradle for, for civilization yeah. for so long. And so the whole place has a certain magic to it, which I don't think I will ever lose, you know, no matter how many times I've been there. Exactly. And this, I mean, we'll get back to this eventually, but if, if I understand this correctly, Cleopatra is closer to us than the pyramid is to her. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah, because Cleopatra died in 30 uh, BC. The Great Pyramids, anyway, because pyramids were built over about yeah. one and a half thousand years, but the Great Pyramid was built about 2500 BC. That's so, when, so when you look at that kind of um, distance, yes, indeed, for Cleopatra, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, anyway, is more ancient than she is for us. Yeah, that's kind of insane. That tells you how old or the human race is and the civilizations really are. That's kind of insane. Yeah. Also, what's interesting is that Cleopatra was able to speak the same language, admittedly a little bit more developed, but the same language as the people who built the pyramids. Yeah. She would have been able to understand and read everything she'd written down by the people who had built the pyramids. Sure. Whereas, whereas we have problems of reading stuff written 100 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so that's one of the things about it is the sheer length of what we, we call ancient Egypt. And although there are massive changes during that time, there are various things which remain common, which is the religion, the basic, the, the, the language and a general sort of way of looking at the world. You sort of answered this question already, but what got you interested in ancient Egypt and the ancient Egyptian, Egyptian mythology that got you dedicated so much to this, this civilization? I don't know. It was one of those things which I, when I joined the public library when I was, say, seven or eight and started looking for books, I got... I got attracted to books on archaeology, possibly because there were pictures of skeletons and things like that, which is yeah. a sort of child you tend to get into. And then fairly rapidly, that general interest in archaeology sort of um, gravitated towards ancient Egypt. And it really sort of, that was it. I was hooked. And it's interesting, I talked to many colleagues in the subject. Many of us were also hooked at that same kind of age. So I think seven or eight is really the time when you start getting interested in things which, in many cases, stay with you for your whole life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that it was, that was one of those things. It was one of those things which bit me back then. I then did a university, and, you know, here I am now, you know, another sort of nearly 60 years yeah. on as, um, as, as a professor of the subject. Wow, that's impressive. But let's start from the very beginning, and we talked a little bit about this through Messenger and... Uh... Let's begin from the rise 
ancient Egypt, the first dynasty on the Forgive me if I pronounced this wrong, but the Hyksos invasion of Egypt. Let's talk, start talking a little bit about this, the very beginning. Well, bear in mind, the Hyksos is nothing to do with the beginning at all. Oh, really? The Hyksos come 2,000 years later. Okay. Now, the, um, the beginnings of ancient Egypt really are come from the gradual melding together of various villages into smaller sort of mini kingdoms which ultimately meant that around about 3000 BC, we had a sort of state in southern Egypt, um, from probably from modern Aswan up to you know, possibly the, um, the, uh, the Fayum Depression, and then another entity in the north. And it was the, and it, around 3000 BC, a ruler who is known to tradition as Menes, but probably... Um, a guy who, from contemporary material, we know is named as Nama, actually then militarily conquered the north for the south. And at yeah. that point, Egypt becomes into, comes into existence as a single political entity. That's the beginning of what we call the early dynastic period and also the first dynasty. Because Egyptian civilization is divided into 31 dynasties, which are basically royal houses, very much like our, we talk about the House of Hohenzollern or you know, all winds, all the various, those sorts of things. That historically, they're known by numbers. And really, from that point onwards, Egypt, once it's a united entity, starts to develop a, a, a nationwide culture. It's once the unification has taken place that the language and the written language in particular develops very, very rapidly. And therefore, after three centuries or so, three or four centuries of this early, early development, the country is sufficiently evolved that it's able to start off carrying out major engineering work, which is where the pyramids come in. Yeah. And um, let's talk about Narmer for a second. What was... He was a so sort of founder, if you might call it, of the ancient Egypt, and it's very much because of the existence of the Nile that ancient Egypt exists, right? Well, yeah, basically, it's the only reason why Egypt exists at all, because of the sort of area which is covered by the modern Arab Republic of Egypt, only about ten percent is inhabitable, and that's basically, and most of that is the chunk which is adjacent to the Nile. The rest of it is desert, except for a couple of oases out um, in the desert, which are fed by groundwater. So yeah. basically, without the river, there is no possibility of living, or at least of practicing any meaningful agriculture in the Nile Valley, and also the annual flood of the Nile allowed it to be naturally fertilized in a very efficient way. And therefore, Egypt was able to support not only you know, feed its population, but also have a large surplus of um, crops. And it's only when you've got a surplus of crops available that you can start paying people not to work in the fields, but to start making art, to start uh, building temples, building pyramids. So it's all to do with the efficiency and productivity of the Nile that everything else flows from that. And the ancient Egyptians, uh, Egyptians sorry, they based their seasons around the Nile and the flooding of the Nile. Isn't that right? Yes, indeed. Basically, New Year's Day was the day that the Nile flood started to rise in the summer. 
and basically the the, the and that is the beginning of the season of inundation and then the rest of the of the year is divided into three seasons each of which reflects what should be going on during that season as far as the agricultural year is concerned and the same goes for um 12 months as well um, but basically, yeah, the whole I everything is ultimately based on the on the Nile um, cycle, and also a lot of sort of philosophical things come that way as well, because while the the colour of resurrection for the dead is black, which is the colour of the silt left on the fields by the inundation, another colour of um, resurrection is green, which of course is the first green shoots. So. Agriculture provides not only the, the economic basis for ancient Egypt, but also it provides for the metaphors used when one is looking at religion and a whole range of right. other things. I'm coming to religion that Narmer, well, was he the founder of Memphis, the capital of well, ancient Egypt? Well, legendarily, anyway, Menes, who probably is Nama, um, was the founder of it. And certainly our earliest evidence for any kind of um, activity in the area of Memphis, just south of Cairo, does come from that period directly following the, the um, unification of Egypt. Right. So the legends which make it founded by Menes, Nama, um, do seem to apply, seem to work archaeologically. Um, but, but of course, the problem is that most of the very earliest, well, all of the earliest levels of Memphis from 3000 BC are so deeply buried and are now underground water that we are unable to recover anything. However, the earliest tombs directly next to Memphis are indeed from that period directly following the unification. Right. So from that point of view, it all seems to work. And that's sort of the pharaoh's temple. What, what were they about? Were they religious purposes or were they ruling purposes or for housing purposes? What, what were the temples about back in ancient Egypt? The Egyptian temple was designed, was effectively the house of, a, of the god. The idea was that gods could come down onto earth and they would manifest themselves in a statue in the temple. So this temp it's important to recognise the temples are not like a modern church or mosque where you go and ordinary people go and worship. The temple was a place where the god actually could come and live, say, inhabiting its statue. What the priests would be doing would actually be looking after that the god. So therefore, food would be offered to the statue of the god. Um, at various times of the day, the clothing of that statue would be changed. Um, you know, the, the, the statue would be woken up in the morning with breakfast. So the idea was it was a place where the god actually lived. And also it was a place where people could interact with the god, although those who were allowed to do so was extremely limited. It wasn't a question of having sort of you know, congregations of worship. No, you'd have the priests would be the ones who were the primary people who could interface with mm. the god, as would also be the king who was part god himself. Yeah. I was, so, I was so about to ask about that, because didn't the pharaohs consider themselves, in fact, gods or demigods? They were, I think, the, de the degree of how much a given a king felt themselves to be a god depended on individual kings. Some seemed to take it far more seriously than others. At least as far as the theology was concerned, they were half god in the sense that on the night of their conception, um, 
a, a god would become incarnate in their earthly father yeah. so therefore they they effectively the sperm which they were produced from was divine and therefore they combined in themselves that divinity one of the problems we have when talking about ancient egypt is they have a word nature which we can convince we normally translate into english as god but actually it means a far wider spectrum of things from that it means something which is divine so where the whereas we've got a very limited vocabulary by having the word god meaning something which is which we tend to think in terms of a Christian or Jewish or, yeah. or Muslim God. The term which we translate, the, the term nature is a much wider thing and it means sort of a whole range of supernatural beings. So to say that you use the same word for both a king and a real God, if you like, you know, the main gods, but it doesn't mean they are identical things. It both It means they have both got divine essence to them, but they are not necessarily of the same standing in the hierarchy of things. Unfortunately, the, you know, Egyptian, the Egyptian just doesn't have the, the, the range of words we have in English. In, in English, we've got sort of words like saint and um, de um, um, demon and all those yeah. kinds of words, which aren't there in the Egyptian vocabulary. So therefore, we have to be very careful when we're translating a word from ancient Egyptian into English, not to read too much of what the English meaning of that word is into what the um, what, what the Egyptians possibly thought about it. And what were some of the gods that they worshipped? Tell me a little bit about the god religion that the or religions, if you will. Yeah. Well, basically, the, the Egyptians have a huge number of gods. Um, a lot of it probably comes back to the period before the unification, where every village had its god. And the thing is, at no point did the Egyptians ever try and produce a unified religion. It's not like when you're looking at the modern monotheistic religions or even the classical um, Greeks and Romans, whereby the gods were all sort of set up in a proper little in a proper sort of organizational diagram. Yeah. Egypt, the Egyptian gods all continue to exist and they continue to have their own little local mythologies so actually depending on where you were in Egypt the relationship between god A and goddess B might be completely different from in a different town but what you do have though is as time goes by you get a bunch of gods who become effectively national gods they still have their local roots but they are ones who almost everybody would recognise. So you have the sun god Ra, you've got the creator, you've got the um, god of crafts from Ptah, you've got Amun, who is the king of the gods for a large chunk of Egyptian history, right. Osiris, god of the dead. So you have these ones, but ultimately they've all got their hometowns originally, even if they have become sort of big national deities. And... Um Let's talk about the death of the pharaohs before, because before the pyramids, they built tombs, correct? And what, what were the tombs' role? What, what were they supposed well, to? The, the very earliest burials in Egypt are simply holes in the desert gravel with the body laid in that. The earliest pharaohs from around before the unification down to about 2700 BC, they were buried in brick-lined pits, um, in the desert, which were probably covered by mounds of gravel. Unfortunately, the superstructures of these early tombs are all completely destroyed. So therefore, there's a certain amount of guesswork by modern archaeologists as to what goes above them. But basically, you've got, got brick-lined um, chambers 
just sunk in the desert gravel, probably covered over by a tumulus of sand and gravel. Because no one was supposed to find this or enter these tombs, correct? They had traps in them. Did they have traps in them? Did they have things they tried to, so, to hide the graves? Sadly, that is a creation of Hollywood fantasy. Yeah. Um, some, some, from fairly early on, tombs would sometimes have a, 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 a hard stone portcullis slab, which would be lowered into the entranceway when it had been closed. But actually, attempts to do anything more clever than simply put sort of large chunks of stone in the way don't really happen until about sort of eight, about sort of 1700 BC, when a few royal tombs start getting very elaborate interiors, so that therefore, rather than the doorway being in the in a wall, the doorway's in the ceiling to make it more difficult. But the idea of the uh, the Hollywood idea of traps to sort of you know, injure people or whatever is complete fantasy. Oh. What they did try and do, however, was sometimes try to to um, decoy robbers away from the actual burial chamber and there is one very very elaborate pyramid from about 1700 is where they they really get quite clever over these things where there's even a dummy burial chamber hmm. so the the obvious way through is to this chamber which looks like a burial chamber but presumably was left empty or something a slave's body was put in the sarcophagus the actual real burial chamber was under the floor so that's the sort of level of sophistication they go for in in, in these tombs, and and, and uh, but otherwise it's more a question of simply just blocking corridors, and I think a lot of it is trying to delay thieves so that the police might actually catch them because we do right. know that there were police patrols around cemeteries, so a lot of it was not was really trying to uh, make it more difficult for for robbers. Uh, rather than trying say, to, to be very sophisticated as um, as Hollywood sort of tries to often tries to make out. Was this what you call the Valley of Kings? And tell me a little bit about the Valley of Kings. What okay. Well, basically, from about 2700 down to 1500 BC, um, pyramids were the the ways to be buried. Right. However, it was by around 1500 BC, there were two things happened. One is it was recognised that pyramids told robbers, hey, there's gold under here. And so the years of, uh, of experience had shown that. But even no matter how carefully you designed the interiors, robbers would still get in. The other thing was that the religious capital of Egypt moved from the north, where there's lots of nice space for building pyramids, to the south in modern Luxor, where there is no space to build pyramids. So therefore, what happens then is pyramids are abolished. You have a temple for the worship of the king's spirit um, on the edge of the uh, fields. But then the tombs themselves are put in a desert valley a couple of kilometers away where they can actually be hidden. So, the so therefore, you've got this sort of, this, this sort of um, practical thing. And then the Bay of the Kings is where these tombs are. You have the tombs cut in the, in the rock. And for most of the time, they then attempt to completely hide them to make sure that there is no way that robbers can get at them. Right. Though later on, they seem to give up on that. And kings seem to want to have their tomb marked in some way on the surface. But for most of the time, the idea of the Valley of the Kings was to make it a secret place for the burial of the king. Do forgive me if I jump a little ahead in time. The ancient Egypt is unfortunately something that I haven't 
put myself too much into, but I would like that's why you have your hero is obviously. And uh, I would like let's jump to the fourth dynasty. And uh, King, forgive me if I say this wrong, but King Sneferu is yes. that correct? Let's talk a little bit about his work and what he did. Yeah, the reign of Sneferu is quite an important one. It seemed there, there we're, we're, it's clear there were some kinds of problems in the years prior to him. We've got very, very diff- it's great difficulty in trying to work out what's going on. But Sneferu's reign suddenly seems to bring in a new era of stability and prosperity. Sneferu, um, what we, although there's very little, little remaining of sort of cities and things from that period, what we do know about Sneferu is he built three pyramids, makes him the greatest pyramid builder of all. And the reason why he does that seems to be because there is a religious evolution going on during his reign. Right. Because previously pyramids were stepped. But under him, he, he starts off by building a stepped pyramid but then he gets it converted into a true pointed pyramid. Um, and, that, and, the, and, the, and the other two pyramids he builds are both built designed as pointed pyramids. But the reason why he ends up building three is one of them has structural problems. So, he's, so there's, there's the practical issue. He's, he has to abandon one because of structural problems, but also he wants to produce this new form of pyramid. And we think... We don't know because nobody bothered to write this down, is that the transition from the stepped pyramid to the true pyramid is to do with the increasing influence of the sun cult. Because the pyramid, as far as we can wait, work out, they never tell us this explicitly, but that is what one can in, 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 infer from what material we do have, is that the true pyramid is effectively the petrified rays of the sun. And in fact, if you oh, stand right. up on the pyramid plateau at Giza uh, on, on a cloudy day and see the sun bursting through the clouds, you see it coming down in a cone of light, which is almost exactly the same angle as the pyramids. So all of that, and also the fact that at the same time um, as the, these, these first true pyramids are being built, people start having names more frequently combined with that of the sun god. Previously, some people did, but it wasn't particularly common. But from that point onwards, having your name combined with the sun god was a very common thing. So we take right. all that evidence together to suggest that's what's happening under Sneferu. The sun cult is, beca- is becoming more important and the, the design of the pyramid is changed accordingly. So you don't think aliens built the pyramids? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, it, it was it was Egyptians, and we've got a, and we've got plenty of evidence that they did. Um, for example, just near the Great Pyramid, which was built by um, by Sneferu's son and successor Khufu, we have right. the bar- we have the workmen's barracks in which the workmen lived. Uh, we've got we've also recently found a, pap- a papyri which describe the transport of stone for for building the pyramids um, on Nile boats. So, you know, the, 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 ev- the evidence is increasingly uh, clear um, as to who was doing it, but also importantly, how. So we, we only, only about three or four years ago, sort of papyri were found, which, were the, um, which was the diary of one of the guys responsible for, bit for, for delivering stone to build the pyramids. So it's, right. all, it's all there. And that's one thing about ancient Egypt is that every year new discoveries are made. Which, sudden, which, which sometimes change what we thought previously or reinforce more on that. So, that, so I say to people that Egyptian history can change overnight. One new discovery can completely our, our, 
our views about how something happened. Um, and therefore, I always say to my students, any book which is more than a couple of years old is probably not worth reading. This will always have changed. Right. Do you have an idea of the process to, of building the pyramids or how, they, how they, the process went? Was it well, slaves that built the pyramids or was it because what, from what I read, sort of read about it, was that the slaves weren't worthy enough to build the pyramids? Is that correct? Well, basically, the, problem, the thing about building pyramids is you require skilled workmen rather than just simply your slave. And the way we think it now, we now think it works, is that for most of the year, there were these skilled workmen who basically, it was a hereditary job. You know, if your dad was a pyramid builder, you were as well. And these were the people who lived in this settlement, which was discovered a few years ago near the Great Pyramid. There, and, 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 but, but the, the, the big bit, the, other, the area where unskilled labour was involved, I wouldn't use the term slaves, but unskilled labour was involved, right. was during the summer. Because during the summer is when the Nile floods, and it means that during the summer, it's possible if you're bringing stone from other parts of Egypt to float it right up to the edge of the desert. So there's no question of dragging it through the fields or anything like that. So during the summer, when the, when the farmers were unable to work fields because fields run water, they were then conscripted to be the unskilled labour. So there'd be two things they'd be doing. One is that they would be helping get materials which have been transported by river up to off of from the edge of the desert up to the pyramid site and that would be more exotic stones because most of the stones for the for the pyramids were were quarried right next to them we actually have got the quarries right next door to them but for the outer facings and the pavements of temples and sort of more exotic things they needed some which came from elsewhere and that would all be floated up to the pyramid complex on the Nile during the inundation. And probably you'd also use the same people, um, these, these unemployed uh, farmers, to drag stone closer to the main pyramid site, where when the and the farmers went back to farming to work in the field, what would then happen is that then the skilled labourers would have all this material much, much closer to the pyramid site and were able to then spend the rest of the year um, assembling all the, you know, the, the kit, if you like, until the next summer where you, you, you get more of the bulk supply of stone brought in. Is it correct that they had to kill everyone that was in the world building, building the pyramid? Once no, that's finished? again Hollywood, Hollywood <laughs> fantasy, I'm afraid. No, these people who built the pyramids were skilled workmen and they worked from generation to generation. So if your father was a pyramid builder, you were as well. The, and, and also right. there was very little which was secret about these things. It, that's what's quite remarkable is at least until they started going for the relatively secret tombs in the Valley of the Kings, a pyramid was basically a standard design. In fact, after about 2300, it was a standard design. Every single pyramid got exactly the same design with the entrance in exactly the same place, the interior arranged exactly the same way. So that actually there was not really much in the way of security involved with it. And I think that the main, and it seems quite clear that the assumption was that the police would always be able to keep guard on these places. It's only when you then have a complete collapse of the state around 2200 BC and civil war, then it's time when these pyramids get robbed because there's nobody to protect them. But the idea that there was any secrets which had to be um, 
which had to be sort of kept by killing workmen, uh, not at all. And the last thing you want to do is kill these kill the right. only people in the world who know how to build a pyramid. Right. And let's move away from the pyramids a little bit and talk about the things. You know, could you tell me a little bit about mystery behind the things? And is this? Um, is it a like a god? Okay. Well, let's just go back it... a, step, a step. Basically, basically, there there right. are thousands of sphinxes in Egypt. Basically, the sphinx is simply a representation of the king with the body of a lion and the head of the king himself. The the right. sphinx, which everybody has heard of, is the most is the largest of them all, which is cut from a living rock near the three pyramids at Giza. Now the now the the date. Of the, of, the, of the cutting of the Sphinx is slightly problematic because of some of the geological features around it. It certainly in its final form fits into the, the layout of the Giza Plateau at the time when the great the three pyramids were built. So that's around about 26, 2500 BC. However, there is some evidence which might suggest that the Sphinx originally was carved slightly earlier, perhaps two or three hundred years earlier. And one thing which does seem quite clear is the head was recarved at least once. It's much smaller than it should be. And it looks like the and the and the actual quality of the stone which the Sphinx is carved from is pretty poor as well. So it's possible that the head, as we currently see it, may have been carved around 1800 or 1900 BC, whereas the rest of it is perhaps a thousand years earlier. So there's no major mystery about it, except there are, there are some indications it could predate the um, pyramid complex. But I think ultimately, but, but ultimately, it forms part of it. So it's an, interest, it's an interesting thing. Too much has been made of some of the problems. Right. Do, you think that the, do you think that it's not as mysterious as people make Exactly. It I don't think it is or... at all, because hey, sphinxes are an extremely common thing in Egyptian art. It's just the fact it's big right. and rock cut, which makes it um, exciting. And it's for the same reason why people get very excited about the Great Pyramid at Giza, because it's big. Um, whereas you know they people, people don't tend to get excited about all the much the, the the dozens of smaller ones which are around. So I think that I think there's just there's and also I think part part of the issue is that the Great Pyramid and the Sphin and the Great Sphinx are all just on the outskirts of Cairo. So therefore everybody has seen them. They've been got to very very easily. Yeah, right. um, whereas it's far more interesting things, but when you've if you've got to drive sort of two hours into the middle of nowhere to see it, you tend not to take take so much interest. So yeah, I think they they have been overhyped greatly. They're really interesting things and important manifestations of what the Egyptians of that period can do, but um, I think people do rather they have been rather say overhyped. But do you think with the modern technology and with the X-ray technology we got today, you think we can? Easily find out more about the pyramids and the fins and the, um, and the tombs. I'm not sure. I think we um, know most of what we're ever going to know. Um, there's been some interesting scanning, which is saying more about the internal structure of some of the pyramids. Um, and, of course, we can now actually look under the ground without having to dig holes. So I think that the, the, the new technology isn't so much to find more out about what we can already see above ground. The new technology allows us to see underground without having to do too much in the way of excavation. So therefore, rather than digging in a spot hoping to find something, you actually know pretty well what's there already by the um, 
by by the remote set by by the modern technology. Right. And I think, and it also because excavation is an expensive thing, the first thing any expedition nowadays will do if it's got a place it's interested in is get the people out with the ground ground penetrating radar and the other technology to spend the whole season wandering around there. And only when you see what the results of that is, do you actually see what's worth actually trying to dig a hole for. Right. And now let's go to the new era, which you call the Golden Age. And let's talk, what do you, what do you consider the Golden Age of ancient well, Egypt? Some people, would argue, some people would argue the time of the Old Kingdom when the, um, when the pyramids were built. But from the period where we actually know most about what's going on is the New Kingdom, which is roughly from about 1500 BC down to about um, um, 1100 BC. And, what about, and the thing about the New Kingdom is that it is the period where Egypt is most obviously part of an integrated international um, uh, set, set of states. Uh, the kings write to each other. Um, there's diplomatic exchanges. There's a huge amount of trade going on, which means that probably as far as sheer wealth is concerned, the new kingdom is the height of Egyptian um, civilization, and we and we can and we and right. also. By the lack of preservation, a lot of the material from that period has survived. So it seems to be a very high point as far as art is concerned, craftsmanship is concerned. Uh, also, sort of literature, it seems to be a high point. And in fact, that's probably true for the whole Near East at that time, that there's clearly a whole set of folk tales, um, religious activities. There's, intellectually, it seems an extremely stimulating period. And also, from the point of sheer uh, military achievement, the New Kingdom is when Egypt rules the largest area ever does. So therefore, it directly rules most of what is modern Sudan, as well as Egypt itself. And it also has indirect rule uh, going all the way up through in what is modern uh, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Palestine, and into Syria as well. Although it doesn't actually, it, in that area, although it doesn't actually formally form part of Egypt, but all the various rulers are answerable to the king of Egypt. So therefore, it's not quite an empire in the Roman sense in that, that area. Right. Because, the, because you mentioned empire and um... The, the Egyptians, Egyptians were never really that interested in building no, a large empire. I think the Egyptians, empire, what they? they're keen to do is make sure they've got, first of all, they're safe. Because the, you mentioned, because the reason why they build that this, this quasi-empire up into Syria-Palestine is because they have been occupied for a century by the Hyksos, who had come from that area. So when they expel these Hyksos rulers, who are just before 1500 BC, um, they then keep they keep going, and they really there's a buffer zone between Egypt and any sort of danger. In many ways, I find it very similar to the way that the old Soviet Union wants to maintain the Warsaw Pact countries as a buffer zone between them and and the West and Western Europe. That, that you know the, the, the Warsaw Pact countries right. were nominally independent, but couldn't do anything unless the Soviet Union told them to do so. And I would think it's very similar in Syria, Palestine during New Kingdom Egypt, that they were all independent. However, it did something fair the king the king of but Egypt didn't really. want to do, there was trouble. Yeah. And uh you know what from what I read the, the this was the golden age is a time when the 
the empire was crushed when they were so the change civilization. The civilization well, well, during changed. during Why that period, this? there is a, there is a, an interesting um, interlude where the religion, which had been established since you know, the very big earliest times, was temporarily set aside in favour of a single sun god, and this was done by a king um, known as Akhenaten. Um, pretty well known also his wife Nefertiti and for a period of not much more than a decade um, Egypt sat, was um, had, a, had a single religion at least the king as far as the king was concerned I don't think pretty most of the other population both the population took much notice of it but there was a single state religion the artistic style was um, was changed very significantly and the whole thing the whole thing so sort of has every um, every sort of aspect of a, of a top-down cultural revolution, that the, 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 art, the change of artistic style was a move by the king to say, the world has changed. And here, you know, and then the whole, the whole way, the relationship between the, between the people, the king and the god was all changed. But it was, very, it was clearly very much a personal thing on the part of Akhenaten, because the moment he's dead everything starts being returned to normal. So it clearly was not any kind of more major intellectual thing. It was to do, it was, a, it was the king's personal desire to do this. And once he was dead, everything started to unravel almost immediately. Right. And um, of course, we, we can't talk about the golden age without mentioning Tutankhamun, and he took over quite young, eight years. It is. That's 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 not uncommon when you have, given that sort of um, life expectancy, you know, it wasn't that unusual to die in your 40s, so therefore an awful lot of kings came right. to the throne after the fairly early death of their of their fathers. And so, yes, yes, he was only eight when he came to the throne. And as such, he probably had very little to do with actually what was going on in Egypt. Right. The vices were the one that really had Well, the, the real, the real power exactly. probably initially lay with his mother, Nefertiti, but then she seems to be murdered, or she certainly dies, dies violently uh, within um, a couple of years after Tutankhamun's session. Um, and then power right. lies in the hands of his grandfather, a man called I, and also who's an army general, and also Horemheb, another army general. And it's those two together who basically then um, dismantle what his father had done um, religiously and politically. And then um, at the age of 18, Tutankhamun dies. We don't, there is a certain amount of mystery as to, as, as to why as, to his mode of death. The, his mummy has been examined more than once. Uh, and there have been various differing opinions as to uh, what might have killed him. Um, there, one, one suggestion is that because one of his legs had been broken, it's unclear, though, whether that was broken before his death or accidentally after his death. So if it was before death, whether or not he had suffered complications from a major fracture. Also, um, there are other other that, 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 that analysis has shown that he had malaria, but as that's endemic in that part of the world, it's unlikely to have caused his death. 
The other, the other thing which is suspicious, he dies at the age of 18, which is the age at which he would normally be expected to be able to take over as king without the need for any advisors or, or regency. So it's always possible that something happened. But there is no, there's nothing um, about the analysis of his body which indicates a, you know, um, a violent death. There was... In, if you read some books written a few years ago, you'll see there's a suggestion that he may have been had a blow to the head. Unfortunately, it's now been shown that's because somebody misaligned his skull when they were x-raying it. And oh. there is actually a sh the shadow which some people oh. said, ooh, that's the remains of um, a blow to the head. Actually, is simply the fact that the thing was, it's a bit of the skull shown from the other side because they hadn't actually lined the um, x-ray plate up properly. So it's one of those little things about saying about earlier on about the way that Egyptian history can change overnight. Well, that's one case where actually a piece of Egyptian history is a complete is is, is simply a mistake. Um, the trouble is, of course, down in books, and people don't necessarily go on and read the more recent books, which show that's all complete junk. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I had to do some uh, research yesterday, but he, one of the things he did was he restored the ancient yes. religion. Well, basically, yes, basically right? that he reversed everything which his father had done. So what his father had done basically was to have the name of the king of the gods removed from all the temples. And Tutankhamun started the process, or at least Tutankhamun's advisors um, started the process of, re of replacing um, the image of Ammon. Also, what his father had done is he'd removed all the funding from the temples of all the other gods. So therefore, the um, the, the money was turned back on again. Um, so therefore, there was a a, rest a restoration of, of of the cults back to what they had been. But what is quite interesting, though, is when you look at it, is that nothing actually quite goes back to the way things had been entirely beforehand that for example um, the way that tombs are decorated changes um, and there's other things so I think what's happened is that the whole upheaval of Akhenaten's religious revolution has made people start to think through things in more detail and that when things are turned to orthodoxy i.e a world where there are many gods and you can have as many gods as you like actually how you re re re-implement that um that res restoration is it, they, they they make they, they make differences um, so it's so it's not we often just simply say, oh, well, it, simply the old ways were restored by Tutankhamun. Actually, they weren't. The, the old way of looking at things was restored. But the way they actually did things, the way that um, temples were decorated to some degree, the way that tombs were decorated changed. So the, the whole episode had allowed some things to be, be, re, be rethought. And that's one thing you do find throughout Egyptian history, although you have an underlying way of doing stuff every so often somebody has a bright idea and things and things change a little bit and here's one of the few whose tombs yes. were not robbed right that's what primarily yeah that's the main reason is. why he is actually you no know, for, for he would he would be an important figure for sort of deep specialists like myself even without his tomb because of what happened under his father but yeah he's um 
his great fame is due to the fact his is the only tomb in the Valley of the Kings to be found almost intact. I say almost because the tomb was clear was was entered by robbers within a few days, if not weeks, of his burial, and a few things were stolen. But clearly, the police managed to catch them. Uh, and the tomb was then resealed. The reason why right. it survived intact after that, however, was completely by accident, because it was placed in a quite a low place in the valley. And not long after the, after the, the resealing, there was a major flood. And that flood laid down a very thick layer over the tomb. And then a few, then a few decades later, uh, the workmen building another pharaoh's tomb in the Valley of the kings built their hut completely by accident on top of where that had been those huts were then were that were then um, partly demolished and then buried so that the the the, the, um, the tomb was very difficult to get to and when there was an orgy of tomb robbery about two centuries after Tutankhamun, robbers there was no way they would want to be know anything was there or would want to dig through all this debris. It was only when you had systematic archaeology in modern times was it possible to actually dig down to that level. And as happened in November 1922, uh, the tomb was found. Right. And another thing we have to mention during this reign is, of course, Ramses the Great, who took the throne at 14 years. So tell me Ram a little bit about his yeah. work. Ramses the Great. Well, the, 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 the term Ramses the Great is something that was given to him by Victorian Egyptologists. And actually, nowadays, most people wouldn't regard him as particularly great. He was he was um, he reigned for a long time. He had a reign of 67 years. He built a huge number of temples. But as far as his sort of claim to being otherwise great other than quantity is, is, is somewhat debatable. Um, he, um, he, was, he, he fought battles up in North Syria, um, not particularly successfully. Um, he did, however, finally bring peace between Egypt and the Hittites, who ruled what is now Turkey, um, with right. the earliest peace treaty, which we, um, we know. He also left a huge family. Um, he had over 100 children uh, during, during, during his, his life. Damn. But actually, his claim to greats, <laughs> I think, is undermined by the fact that within two decades of his death, Egypt was racked by civil war with members of the royal family fighting each other for the throne. So I think in some ways he may have sort of um, set up something during his lifetime. But often the greatness of a king is measured by how things went after he died. And given that there was a period of chaos after right. his death, not long after his death, suggests that he perhaps didn't sort of lay the foundations particularly well. It's kind of like Alexander the Great. Yeah, I Alexander think it's one of those things great, that in the 19th right? century, particularly, there was this question about whether you call various people the great. Uh, it was rather fashionable to do so. And Ramesses II um, did, um, there was one of the people who got that, that, that epithet. Uh, nowadays, everybody would simply call him Ramesses II you know, and leave it at that and, and say most people would, would very much doubt him being great other than an ego. Right, and that brings us to the New Kingdom and the Egyptian Empire, of the Egyptian Empire. And let, can you talk a little bit about some of the most famous pharaohs and what they, they were? Well, apart, apart the, from Ramesses II kingdom. himself and Tutankhamun, who have just mentioned, and Akhenaten, um, king, key kings of the New Kingdom are people like um, the female king, Hatshepsut, 
there is uh, King Thutmose III, who was responsible for the largest extent of the Egyptian Empire during the New Kingdom. Um, also, um, but later after Ramesses II is Ramesses III, um, who um, was responsible for, for basically saving Egypt from invasions from the north. Around about 1200 BC, something bad happened somewhere in the Balkans, and as a result, a huge movement of population swept through the ancient Eastern Mediterranean, basically knocking out many of the great civilizations of that period until they got to Egypt, which was where Ramesses III stopped them. So Egypt was the only state in that whole area around from sort of Greece through Turkey down through Lebanon and, and so on, which actually survived as a state after this event. On the other hand, though, the economic um, damage was probably significant to Egypt and Ramesses was actually murdered a few years later. And the, ne and the next few decades see a major economic decline um, in Egypt. And then the country then goes into a period whereby periodically it splits into one or more separate kingdoms with various warring factions around. Right. And one of the, something I want to touch a little bit upon is Akhenaten. Sorry if I say the name wrong. As the Egyptian's name is not my strong suit, unfortunately. But he was mistaken for being the first practitioner. I've already been talking about correct? Akhenaten earlier on, along with Siti. Um, but yeah, say so that he had right. a single religion. However, it's un uh, and also he certainly persecuted at least one of the other gods, Ammon, and turned off all the resources to the other ones. But whether or not he was a real monotheist in the sense he only believed there was one god, Full stop. That's yeah, the question. That's the that actually, the very fact he was happy to persecute Ammon suggests he believed Ammon existed, because Ammon was therefore an enemy who he was he was fighting against. So yeah, I think he's not a monotheist in the sense that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are, whereby there is only one God. All he, I think, what he was probably saying was the only God who matters is his god, the art, and everybody else can go away. That's what, where, we, where, where, where I think most people nowadays think he, he stands you know, as a, say, a mono, I think that the term they use is a monolatrist rather than monotheist. Monotheist implies you only believe in your god. You're right. What we think today is that he believed the other ones existed, but they didn't matter for anything. The only one who mattered God. Right. And uh, that brings us to the fall of ancient Egypt. And let's yeah. talk about the loss of military power. Yeah. Well, well, uh, well, but as I was, as I was saying, really, the, the, the big issues come comes around from about 1200 when manages to um, stop Egypt invaded by these people from the however it's the international economy is and Egypt isn't isn't um, unaffected by all that so what happens is that we get six uh, steady economic decline then we get a number and normal as, as you normally find with economic decline there is um, civil civil conflict 
And then we move into what we call the third intermediate period, which is a period whereby, although for most of the time Egypt, Egypt is nominally a single country ruled by a single pharaoh, at various points he is really a sort of a figurehead figure with the real power elsewhere. And then we do get points where the country splits up into a number of separate kingdoms. There's one point where you've got at least six different people all claiming to be pharaoh at once, ruling different parts of the country. So and and so therefore, no, the, in this kind of situation, the economy isn't good. You get minimal um, amount of art and architecture being produced. Um, and so that really is where the, the real start of the end for ancient Egypt comes. It's quite a long drawn out process, however, because after a point where the Assyrians from northern Iraq invade Egypt, they make a, Egypt makes a, fa a fairly good comeback. But then once you're getting into the period from about 600 BC onwards, Egypt is one country while the rest of the ancient world is being put together into huge empires. So therefore, you, what ends up then happening is in 525 BC, Egypt is conquered by the Persians and becomes part of the Persian Empire for a couple of centuries. They make a, the Egyptians make a brief comeback and the Persians come back. Then Alexander the Great comes in um, to get the, with the Persians, but also takes over Egypt. And the whole thing then just sort of carries on. So really, from that from that point in time, uh, from the time of about three uh, about three hundred BC, Egypt is never again truly independent until the twentieth century AD. Right. Now let's talk about the aftermath of ancient Egypt. What, what, what was the aftermath after? You talked a little bit about the aftermath. Like well, basically, as, as, as aftermath. I say, the um, Egypt becomes part um, part of Alexander the Great's empire, and then is ruled by an independent line of um, people descended from one of his generals, a man called Ptolemy, and this is where the various Cleopatras and and, and so on um, come into the story. And in 30 BC, the last of those. Uh, gets defeated by the first Roman emperor, um, Augustus, and Egypt then becomes part of province of the Roman Empire. Primarily, its, it's main role it being to be provide um, grain for the rest of the Roman Empire, because Egypt is still a very efficient um, economic power, as we've been saying, as I said um, previously. And it then just sort of chugs on um, onwards as Christianity starts taking over from paganism throughout the Roman Empire, that happens in Egypt as well. And the last of the pagan temples, the ancient temples, are closed down um, at the end of the 4th century AD. Egypt is then a Christian country through until... And then increase, it gradually becomes a majority um, Muslim um, country as part of the Islamic empires at that time. It gets taken over. Sorry? The, yeah, Ottoman, the, well, the Empire, Ottoman Empire then comes in in, the in um, 1517. Because what we're talking about there is the, uh, the caliphs of, um, of Iraq, Syria and so on. There's that Islamic Empire. But then all of that gets absorbed by the Ottoman Empire with Egypt falling to the Ottomans 
in 1517. And actually, it remains, it remains nominally part of the Ottoman Empire till 1914. Right. In 1914, um, it then becomes a British protectorate for a few years under its own sultan. And then after the First World War, Egypt becomes an independent kingdom again, although under British occupation right the way through to the Second World War. And it's only after the first Egyptian revolution in 1952 that Egypt is truly an independent entity again for the first time since ancient times. Right. And I think that really concludes the, this podcast, this episode. Thank you so much for being on and talking about ancient Egypt. And well, just, well, just to we say go, that my, my book on, my, my biography of Queen Nefertiti has just come out. And also there is a big volume on the history of Egyptology, um, which I've um, edited with two colleagues, which should be out just before Christmas. So... Um, that's, that's a, so a couple of people are interested in sort of following up some it? of this stuff. Those are a couple of new books. And also I've got a whole uh, page on Amazon with 25 books that you can buy if you wish to. So, uh, so if you want. Right. If you link me this, I will put, put it in the description below after I've published. Yeah, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. You have any social media as um, well? You want I'm, to? Around, I'm, I'm, I'm generally around. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for coming on on such short notice. Thank you for talking about ancient Egypt. Um, this has been the World That Aged World podcast right. with Alan. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm -hmm. 